or summer, at which point we'll be caught up to the present day. But in this summer, we're going to be thinking about the Reformation and the events that surrounded it and the way that it's impacted us in our time, the way that we can learn from it, the way that it has affected us, and the way that we should be responding to our day in light of what we know about the Reformation. So, um, a few notes. I was very much um, appreciative of and enjoyed last weekend. The transition has gone well. I, I have, I have, uh, my voice has risen about an octave in the, in the last weekend. <laughs> and uh, the transition has gone well. I did take a day this past week since I'm not retired, but not as, as central. And I took four of the, I took Micaiah and Nady and Levi and Judson to Cedar Point for the day. Spurred on to do that by the staff having taken me there the week before. And it was a wonderful day and I'm grateful to God for the chance to do this. I want you to know, and I'll be repeating this um, through the summer and you'll be hearing more about this as the summer goes on. That though I am now transited, right, <laughs> into a new role, and Nathan has sort of jumped into the role that I had, the, the official um, acknowledgement of this was not last weekend, of Nathan's elevation, okay? It was last weekend saw my departure from the role, but churches do what's called an installation service for a new pastor. It's almost always done, especially in churches like ours that are, that are from the Reformed tradition. And, uh, and so there, is going to be, there are going to be a number of special services, we hope, coming up this year, including, for instance, the ordination we're hoping of Jake. Um, his exams are coming up later this month for ordination. But in September, on the 10th of September in the evening, there will be a major service, an evening service called the installation of our new pastor. And uh, so mark that on your calendar because you want to be here for that. That's as important as last weekend. And I know that um, I, I think perhaps that my old friend, uh, who was my best friend through third grade, and then his family moved back to Switzerland. And uh, he's lived in Switzerland ever since. And I haven't seen him since third grade. Now, we've written and things over the years. I haven't seen him, but he's the doctor there that Nathan lived with when he went as a youth pastor. How many of you remember Nate doing that? And his wife's name is, does anyone know? Lucia, yeah. His wife's name is Lucia, so you know where Lucia comes from. And uh, Nate has invited uh, Clive, his name is Clive Wildersmith, to come, and I think he and Lucia are going to be coming. At least Lucia will be here. So I'm looking forward perhaps to seeing a friend I haven't seen in 50 some years. <laughs> It'll be really strange. You know, we were best friends. Our families were friends and then they moved. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, David Hubler, would you begin this summer and this, this morning with prayer? Ask God to be with us. Amen. Thank you, David. I want to bring you up to date with the Reformation, which means in a certain sense that we have to go back, sort of recovering ground to 
point us towards the events that we will be looking at this summer. And so this, this first Sunday, what I'm wanting to do is to talk about the situation that obtained, that was in existence prior to the Reformation and why there was a need for Reformation. What was going on that produced the Reformation? Now, we went through it two summers ago and talked about how Constantine became emperor and converted to Christianity and what a huge change that created for Christianity. That change reverberated for centuries and still does today through the world and through the church. It made Christianity instead of the, the well, it was not the opponent of, but opposed by the government to being Christianity suborned under the government, brought into, made part of the government. And so Constantine was a Christian emperor. He was the, the, the emperor of Christendom and baptized on his deathbed, but seriously committed to Christ. And his mother is clearly a Christian. If he was maybe questionable, his mother, there seems to be no question um, that Empress Irene, I think her name was, was a true believer. And, and so Rome became the Christian nation, the protector of the church. That was in the 300s. But Rome was dissolute already. It was already a depraved nation, much like the United States today. You know, just, and, and a Christian emperor was not going to change the entire character of, of pagan Rome overnight. What it did do was allow the church to grow and to have great buildings and for there to be the existence of a centralized power structure that began to grow up in Rome, which was known as the papacy. In the initial days of the church and the papacy, Rome was just one of about four uh, chief uh, archbishoprics. It was uh, one of four along with the others were Constantinople, right? You know what the others are? Alexandria and, and, and what? What other one? Jerusalem, which fell away quickly because of the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem and then one more. We were there last summer, Cheryl and I. What? Antioch. Okay. Great places. Antioch and Alexandria were probably the chief among those. Constantinople rose later. And, but the Pope in Rome, the Papa, that means father, um, was, was always uh, vying with the others for influence. But because of his being at the center of a place of empire, he continued to, to increase relative to the others. Not, not overly so. It was not clear, even in 1000 AD, you know, 700 years after Constantine, that the Pope was the Pope as we know him today. That was certainly not clear. In fact, in 1000 AD, the, the, the church that was ruled from Constantinople, the Orthodox Church, separated. It was cast out by the Pope in Rome, and uh, it went on its way, and it said, and one of the major complaints was against the Pope, against the papacy. So as, the, as Rome went along, Rome became less and less important. It was no longer the center of the world. The Roman Empire was invaded, you know, the Vandals and then the Goths, and the, and the center of power in Europe moved northward, all right? And I think it's important that we... Um, that we understand this is going on 
as we think about the roots of the Reformation, eventually Charlemagne brings together an empire that's called the Holy Roman Empire. And this was at its furthest, furthest extent the, the land that the, the Holy Roman Empire held. The Holy Roman Empire was called Holy Roman because the Pope, and I can't remember his name, but pulled a fast one. The, he was meeting with Constantine and to sort of demonstrate his superiority to the earthly emperor, he surprised Constantine by crowning him king of, of Rome, as though he had the authority to do that. Well, uh, I mean Charlemagne, I didn't mean Constantine. Uh, and so Charlemagne uh, accepted that and it sort of became the understood thing that the Pope crowned the emperor. But as you can see, Rome is right in here and it's at the periphery of the Holy Roman Empire. And so as the 600s, 700s, and 800s move on, this area is under the rule of princes and kings, the, the Holy Roman Empire, which devolves into the, you've heard of the Habsburg Empire and things like that, that was centered here and, and ruled around here and sort of disappeared at the end of, at the beginning of World War I. Uh, the, the Pope was down here, and he was, um, he was in an area where the, the kings were little kings of little places, not really a part of the great Holy Roman Empire. And so the, there came a point where the Pope was under the, the authority, not of the king really who ruled up here, although he would crown this king, but he was actually controlled by lesser kings that that reigned in this area of Italy. Um, this is important because, because of the, the way these, the, the politics became a part of the papacy during that time. The, the church during that time, during the, between the years of 600 and 1100 say 500 years became almost utterly corrupt so corrupt that it's almost hard to describe and the the key things that the the church was was done in by are the desire for earthly power corresponding with it the desire for money and if you want to think about the Reformation, you have to think about two tracks. You have to think about worldly things, and you have to think about theological and spiritual things, and they're interrelated. But this is one track here. The power, the greed, and this, the incredible sexual immorality of the papacy, which became reflected throughout the church, where it was common by the time of Luther for the priest who theoretically had vowed celibacy to be preaching to his children. And it just was known that this was the case. The idea of papal celibacy had not been established in 600 AD. There were a number of people like the Desert Fathers that we talked about last summer, these, these people like Anthony of the Desert who went out and who were committed to celibacy, but it was not demanded of every of every pastor or every priest. But as this time went on, the popes became more and more scandalous. One of the most scandalous of the popes was um, 
There was a pope named uh, Pope John the Twelfth. Pope John the Twelfth is called the worst pope ever by Catholics. I, I could read to you pages of Catholics. Uh, Catholic writing officially published under the imprimatur of bishops. Imprimatur means the approval of high Catholic authorities that describe the church and, and why the Reformation happened. And these Catholics spare no words in, in talking about how evil the church had been. They go through, they catalog the lust for money, they catalog the sexual depravity, they catalog all these things, the selling of relics, the selling of indulgences. They give all these things. And then at the end they say, but praise God, the papacy, the vicar of Christ was established by Jesus. And despite all that, it maintained the church and the church is healthy today. And these men were not able to kill it. They don't seem to recognize, and this is something that we're going to have to see over and over again this summer. They don't seem to recognize that by defending these papal infallibility and the, the integrity of the office in the face of these wicked men, that something is lost. That you can't hold that these were evil and awful men and yet the papacy is inerrant. What they say, and there's a term called, even in public uh, secular society, it's a term... Uh, in fact, let me just break off a moment. How many of you grew up in a Catholic church? Okay, a good many of you. What I want to say is that I, I intend to be every bit as, as honest and at points critical of the Protestant church next summer as we must be of the Catholic church this summer. Okay? I, I, we are not the heirs of glory anymore. We are the children of wickedness, just like the Catholic Church at that time was. And, and so we can't claim that we're better. We can only look at the church then and then our church today and say, huh, how is it that both these churches have ended up in very similar positions? Because if you, you know, I, let me just say, and I'm not getting ahead of myself here, that if you think about the Catholic Church and its sexual immorality and its leadership, prior to the sort of cleansing of the papacy that took place initially by Hildebrand, who was Gregory VII, and then in a much greater way after the Reformation. If, if you look at the Catholic Church and its sinful ways in those days, and you go online and you read about the Protestant leaders of our nation, the sexual affairs, the love of money, the desire for power, there's no difference. There's been, yeah, we look at Roman Catholicism and we say, oh, bad. But we're, we're the children of them. You know, how many of you know of some major evangelical leader who committed an adultery in the course of his leadership? How many of you know someone? I mean, everyone knows it. It's the story you can go on. There are whole sites on the internet that are filled with scathing stories about pastors who are abusing children. It's not just in the Catholic Church. You know, it's like we would say today, oh, we're the, the children of God. Kind of like the days in the, in the, the Old Testament and in the New one, 
the people of Judah would say, oh, those people on the north. And God says, you know, your sister is, is less wicked than you are. Remember that prophecy? And so we have to recognize this. So Rachel, I love you. All right? And I know I don't intend to, to speak ill of Catholicism. This is our heritage, all of our heritage. You understand? And uh, we, we know that there are many good Christians in the Catholic Church. Um, and yet I think it has fallen from what Christ intended. In the same way we could say there are many good Christians in the Methodist Church. But it's fallen from what Christ commended. And we can't rip on Catholicism or Orthodoxy without it initially <laughs> acknowledging that we are the same. So uh, Pope John Twelfth was, he was awful. They said that he was known for his incest. He loved to kill people. He had his confessor when he was a younger man blinded because he didn't like the, the hard penances that the confessor, the father who had been his confessor, that had given him. He was just this dark age, seculum obscure, of which Pope John Twelfth was the last pope. This, um, this seculum obscure means dark age. It lasted 60 years, really for the most of, of the, the 10th century, 900 to 1,000. A series of popes that were under the influence of, in particular, under the influence of the local monarch who in, in that region was uh, a king of a portion of Italy. His, he was, his name was Theophylact. He had a wife, Theodora. They basically gave their 15-year-old daughter, Marosia, to be the concubine of the first of these Dark Age popes, Pope Sergius III. She was his concubine. Uh, then Theophylact's wife, Theodora, um, who had given her daughter to the Pope, actually committed adultery with the, the, the Pope who followed Sergius. It, it just was a crazy story. So sons of popes were inheriting the papacy during this period. There were nine or ten popes. Just an absolute insanity. There was an illegitimate son, two grandsons, two great-grandsons, and one great-grandson of this Marosia, the daughter who was given as a concubine, became popes during this period. You read Roman Catholic sources on this period, and it was, it was dark. They called it the pornocracy. It was the time when sexual sin reigned in Rome. Just an awful period. At, in, the, in the early thousands, there became a reform movement. And the reformers, one of them was Humbert. You've, you may have heard of Humbert. He was the guy we talked about uh, last year who, who delivered the letter that broke the relationship between Rome and Constantinople. He was a, an arrogant hard man, but he also was a, a real reformer. Humbert was a force during this period, a guy named Peter Damiani, um, a bishop of Ostia on the Italian coast, was um, famous for his personal holiness, and he criticized the immorality among the clergy, 
And these men were significant. But then in 1050 AD, I think it was, 1057, I don't know, somewhere in the 1050s, uh, 1073, that is, Hildebrand, a man named Hildebrand, got elected, a bishop named Hildebrand got elected to the papacy. And thus the reform movement that took place in the late uh, 11th century into the 12th century is named the Hildebrandine reform of the church. Hildebrand seems to have been a godly guy. He was forceful. People were moved by him. He despised the wickedness of the church, all right? He was sickened by the way that emperors were trading the papacy. He was sickened by the illegitimate births. He was sickened by all this. And when he became king or a pope, he said immediately, all right, we're going to reform the papacy. He and the other reformers who had been before him had two main aims. First, they wanted the pope to be holy. They wanted the pope to be holy and independent of the power of the secular rulers, which is, isn't it interesting that for centuries since Constantine, the popes have looked to be united with the secular rulers. But Hildebrand wanted to say, wanted the, the papacy to be free from the control and from the authority of the emperor. He, he feels he can stand on his own. That he doesn't need the emperor supporting him. He doesn't want to be tied to an emperor. He wants to have everything his way. So he wants to transform the pope, the, the, the church, by having the papacy become a, a more powerful and a more clean institution. He and the other reformers also want to get rid of something that has always existed in the church. Um, he wanted to get rid of the sin of simony. How many of you know what simony is? Uh, uh, ben, what is it? Uh, buying, buying what? Yes, in the church. And who is it named after? Uh, Simon Magus in, in the book of Acts. who said, I want to buy the Holy Spirit, right? And Peter said, may your money perish with you. What, am I missing something? No, okay. <laughs> Whenever I see people laugh out there, and I'm not sure why I checked my fly. So <laughs> it's the first thing I do. <laughs> uh, simony was rife. The, the Pope would sell positions. The emperors would sell positions. There was a great debate on who got to appoint bishops and priests. And so for many years, emperors had said, well, this is our land. We're going to appoint the priests. We're going to be in charge here, right? But the Pope was, by the time of Hildebrand, he said, I'm against it. You are never going to appoint another one. We're not going to sell these. They're under my control. It's wrong. Now, we, we love this, don't we? He says, we're not selling this. And what else did he do? Well, he wanted to deal with the sexual immorality. And so he became a staunch teacher and, and a proclaimer of the need for for priestly celibacy so priestly celibacy really came about as a requirement about the time 
of Hildebrand. Hildebrand was also, he was in lower Italy, up a little further north in Italy is a city named Milan. There'd always been rivalry between Milan and Rome, which one was the more important one. Milan had had Ambrose as its famous bishop, and that just gave it a certain credibility because of the godliness of Ambrose, and uh, it gave it some credibility. Hildebrand fought against uh, uh, Milan. Milan had always allowed the priest to marry. And so when Hildebrand sort of got the reins of the papacy in his hands and started changing things, he was able to, uh, to purify the church by stopping the sale of the offices and by requiring celibacy. Now, it was hard and he was opposed along the way. Some of the, uh, the, the kings and the nobles of the lands where they had made money from selling the, the offices were very unhappy with him, but there was always a, a current, an ebb back and forth of, of people who were for the papacy because they didn't like some of the things that were going on, people who were against the papacy because they, didn't, they wanted to continue to have certain powers. That, and so you'll find that throughout the time, the politics and the papacy, the politics of the world and the papacy are merged, and this continues into the Reformation. You can't separate the... the political issues that were part of the Reformation from the theological. We concentrate on the theological, but the Reformation was aided by God providentially through political currents as, as much as by the teaching of Luther, right? Uh, so we have in uh, the papacy a man named Hildebrand, Pope Gregory VII. Hildebrand publishes right off the bat in his papacy a document on the, the rights of the Pope. And I'm going to show you that it's a very short summary of the powers of the Pope. He became Pope in 1073. First thing he does is to, to put this document that is known as the Dictatus Papae, the papal rule, the leading of the, the Pope. And uh, you can see a copy of it that's in the Vatican archives behind. Um, there's that, that document in full from the Vatican. You can see up there, Dictatus Papae. It says that the Roman church was founded solely by God. That the Roman church is the sole church that is founded by God. And there is no other founder. In other words, this is a claim that the papacy wasn't of human institution, but it was by God. Only the Pope can with right be called universal. Only the Pope. So the, 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 the cardinal, the archbishop, the primate of the Orthodox Church has no right to be called universal. Only the Pope is universal. He alone can depose or reinstate bishops. All bishops are below his legate, in other words, if he chooses a private pastor to represent him like an ambassador and a council, well, that pastor has more authority than the highest bishop there because that's the authority of the Pope. The Pope may depose the absent. He may, he may say from here to Norway, you're done. You know, I've deposed you. Among other things, we ought not to, five, six, among other things, we ought not to remain in the same house with those as a rule of discipline. For him alone it is lawful 
according to the needs of the time, to make new laws, to assemble together new congregations, to make an abbey. So he rules all the affairs of the church. He alone may use the imperial insignia. All princes shall kiss the feet of the Pope alone. What's that? Yeah, well, yes, yes, they're to kiss his feet. His name alone shall be spoken in the churches. His title is unique in the world. It may be permitted to him to depose emperors. It may be permitted to him to transfer bishops if need be as the power to ordain the clerk of any parish. He controls the local church as well as the overall church. He who is ordained by the Pope may preside over another church but may not hold a subordinate position. Such a person may not receive a higher clerical grade from any. He is in absolute control. No synod shall be called a general synod without his order. No chapter and no book shall be considered canonical without his authority, the imprimatur. A sentence passed by him may be retracted by no one. He alone may retract it. He himself may be judged by no one. This is part of canon law. All right? No one shall dare to condemn any person who appeals to the apostolic chair. And so that, this is an interesting one. I think it's a minor point. But if someone appeals to the Pope, it's like the emperor. You remember how Paul appealed to the emperor? No one can deal with him because the emperor's rule is supreme. Well, he's, he's in charge. And if anyone appeals to him, then they have the right to come to him. Now, it's not really a protection of the rights of the accused. It's more the protection of his authority. You understand? The more important cases of every church should be referred to the apostolic say, that's his, his office. The Roman church has never erred, never erred, nor will it err to all eternity. Scripture being witness to this. The Roman pontiff, if he has been canonically ordained, is undoubtedly made holy by the merits of St. Peter, St. Enodius, Bishop of Pavia, bearing witness, and many other holy fathers agreeing with him as it's contained in the decrees of Pope St. Symmachus, saying that the Pope is by virtue of office holy. By his command and consent, it may be lawful for subordinates to bring accusations against him. In other words, people can accuse him of things, but only if he says you can He may depose and reinstate bishops without assembling a synod. He who is not at peace with the Roman church shall not be considered Catholic. He may absolve subjects from their fealty, which means their regard for or obedience to wicked men. He is allowed to say to kings and bishops and anyone in the world, your ruler is over. Well... What happened is he said that I am going to appoint, I'm going to appoint, uh, okay, I'm not going to be there yet. I'm going to appoint all the bishops, and they're going to, under my authority, appoint all the priests, and we are not allowing the kings to appoint their bishops The practice of kings appointing bishops was called lay investiture. Lay meaning not the pope, not the church, but the lay, the laity, the secular powers were allowed and given the authority to appoint, had done this for centuries. But Hildebrand says no longer 
it's not going to happen. We're not going to permit it. And so at that point, there is a, an emperor in the Holy Roman Empire up north, that big empire, named Henry IV. He was an absolutely gifted ruler, a great soldier. His moral character was not devout. He committed adultery, and he was a tyrant, but he was a very successful emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He had been involved in a civil war with his own nobility who had questioned his authority. He was ruling with a strong hand. When he was age 25, he managed to establish his own power against the German nobility. The German church had strongly supported him in the war against his nobles. German bishops saw this man. They said, he's better than the guys he's fighting we want Henry IV to be the king of the Holy Roman Empire. The church backed him as the best hope for a strong, stable, secure government of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, Hildebrand says, all right, I'm going to deal with this in lay investiture. And he's not going to start with the local guys or the little guys. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the, the root. And I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to declare to Henry that he is not allowed to appoint. And this dictata pape was one of his instruments in doing this, that I am in charge. And he issued this challenge to Henry, the dictata pape and the forbidding of, of the appointment of, of, of priests and bishops by anyone but him. When he did this, the German bishops at first supported the emperor. And so Henry, feeling strong because his bishops are behind him and he's recently won the war against his nobility, he <clears throat> appoints a new archbishop of Milan, that city to the north that's always vied with Rome. Henry says, all right, I'll show you. You're going to tell me what I can do. I'll show you what I can do. And he appoints a bishop in, the, in Milan, which is the the competitor to Rome. And, and he and the German bishops joined in condemning Hildebrand and rejecting him as Pope. So it was a, a straight-up fight for power between the two of them, the 60-year-old Pope, the 25-year-old Emperor. Um, Henry sent an official letter to Hildebrand, Pope Gregory VII, from the council that he held at Worms, where he had appointed the Bishop of Milan. And he wrote to him, and he said, To Hildebrand, not a pope, this is his words, but a false monk, how dare you, who have won your power by deceit, flattery, bribery, and force, stretch forth your hand against the Lord's anointed, despising the command of the true pope, St. Peter, who said, Fear God, honor the king, 1 Peter 2.17. You do not fear God, and you dishonor me whom he has appointed. Condemned by the voice of all our bishops, leave the apostolic throne and let someone else sit there, someone who will preach the healthy doctrine of St. Peter and not exploit religion as a cloak for violence. I, Henry, king by the grace of God, 
you catch that? <laughs> With all my bishops say to you, come down, come down from the papal throne and be damned through all the ages. So this is the response Hildebrand gets from the young guy. Well, what does Hildebrand do? It seems like Hildebrand was anticipating something like this because immediately, just immediately, he excommunicates Henry and says, all right, you're no longer king. I appoint the kings. You're out of the church. You're out of God's will, and you're done. Well, <laughs> that forced the, the bishops of the Holy Roman Empire, and especially in Germany, the, the center of it, to decide who do they want. You know, are they going to go with the Pope? Are they going to go with their monarch? And they, they wavered. His closest allies, afraid for their own position, they obeyed Hildebrand and refused all further cooperation with the emperor. So by that one decree, two-thirds of Henry's army deserted, the two-thirds which came from Christian lands, Henry's German nobles, who had been fighting against him and defeated, rise up against him again. And at a council that they hold in 1076, they suspend Henry from his imperial office. He has no army anymore. He's powerless. They, the nobles invite Hildebrand to come up to another council to be held in 1077 at Augsburg where they would elect a new, they're important, they're, the importance of this, what they're trying to do is have a new emperor elected that would be favorable to them and to Hildebrand. The Holy Roman Emperor, the most exalted king in Western Europe, was toppled from his throne by one decree. So what does he do? Well, Hildebrand is concerned that Henry's going to have enough of an army that he's going to come and attack him down there in Italy. And so he, he goes and takes refuge in, in the north at Canossa in a castle with a man named Hugh the Great who is the abbot of a great monastery named Cluny. Hildebrand took refuge in the castle there and protected by that wealthy and powerful friend, Hugh the Great, not powerful, that, I mean not wealthy, but very powerful, and by a wealthy uh, friend as well, the Countess of Tuscany, um, he was holed up in this castle. So Henry IV comes to the castle without an army in January of 10, 1077 in northern Italy. You've, how many of you have been to northern Italy? You know, it's not much different than southern, uh, Fran uh, southern Switzerland or Germany. It's, a, it's a, a, the Alps, the, the Pyrenees go through it. It's a cold, very, very inhospitable part of Italy. So he comes there for three days. He stands outside the castle gate with his wife and his children, bare feet in the freezing snow, crying out to Hildebrand that he had repented, pleading for mercy. Inside the castle, holed up inside there, is the Pope, along with Hugh the Great, the abbot of Cluny, who, which is like second to Pope in certain ways and influence in the world at the time, this, this abbot. The abbot is saying to the Pope, you've got to show mercy. You've got to show mercy. The Pope is saying, I'm not going to show him mercy. It's a fake. For three days, he and his wife, alone, barefoot in the snow, are pleading for mercy, saying we've repented. Finally, it seems Hildebrand, 
who has a conscience, you know, you understand in all this, he's seeking to take back the church from all the wickedness that had preceded him. Hildebrand finally says, all right, I've got to do it. And he lets him in and he forgives him, which immediately means that Henry IV is back on his throne, right? He's right back on his throne. What does he do? <laughs> he, he, he does exactly what the Pope thought he'd do. He does exactly that. He's, he's restored to power. He's, he has his army back. Henry returns to Germany. A new civil war breaks out. His foes had elected a, an alternate emperor, Rudolf of Swabia, in, in, these, in that year. And, uh, and the German bishops, again, support Henry. So the nobility are opposing him, but the bishops have come back because the Pope has forgiven him, and they're on his side. They stay with him, and <laughs> at last, and, and so the Pope, Hildebrand, and this is a sad point, Hildebrand is being sought by both sides to be with them. The, the, the nobility and the new emperor and are saying, you're with us, and Henry IV and the bishops are saying, no, you're with us. And what does he do? He waffles for several years, which gains him no friends. And eventually, he gets a threatening letter from Henry saying, you have to do this. I demand that you side with me. And he again excommunicates Henry. Excommunicates him again. But at this point, the bishops say, we're done. We're sticking with our emperor at this point. And Henry wins the Civil War. Rudolph is killed in battle. And victorious, he then invades Italy, conquers the north. 1084, he captures Rome itself. Hildebrand has locked himself away in the Roman castle of Sant'Angelo. Henry places the Archbishop of Ravenna on the throne. And in place of him, he deposes the Pope and puts in a new Pope, Pope Clement III. Clement then crowns Henry as the Holy Roman Emperor uh, and eventually the Pope Hildebrand dies. He says as his last words, and it's written on his tomb, I have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. So this is kind of the background. This is the background. This is just a slice of the background, but of what's been going on that leads to Luther. In the centuries that follow, before Luther, there's back and forth. The papacy does gain power over the kingdoms of the world. It, it's constantly gaining power. And, and the love of money, the sexual immorality, the desire for power just continue and increase. There are reform movements along the way. There's the cleansing of the papacy. But following this, there's what's known as the Avignon papacy. When... The pape, there are three popes elected and they're fighting it out. And it, just craziness with sexual immorality. It's kind of hard. And Catholic sources will tell you exactly the same thing I'm telling you right now. With one distinction, they'll say, um, but God had established this. God gave this power to this vicar of Christ. And therefore, all this was in God's will and in his official acts as Pope, he was kept from error. So it becomes a distinction. 
that when the Pope is acting ex cathedra, which means from his papal chair, from his throne, he's inerrant. When he's acting just as a common man, he makes error. Now, I talked moments ago, well, some moments ago, about a term that's come down to us as a term for shifting sides in an argument, in a slippery position. Those who hold to a position and then are very slippery and always have a way of evading the weight of arguments against them are known as what type of arguers? Anyone know? It's tied to the Catholic Church. You can look it up, but it's Jesuitical. The Jesuits were masters. You've heard of Jesuitical argumentation? Jesuits are masters of holding two apparently opposing views or points and saying, well, there's a way to reconcile it. And so I, I would say to you that whether it's Protestant or Catholic, truth is truth. And you can't have two opposed sides and just reconcile them by saying, well, you know, what does it matter? This is a, a, a common Protestant problem, but it's also very, very, very common. It's, in fact, it's so common by the Jesuits, it's been get called uh, Jesuit casuistry. And as we look at things in the weeks to come, I hope you understand that that what Luther is seeking to do is to cut through all these arguments. He's just saying, look, the papacy was bad. He didn't want to start there, but he ended there. Look, the evil is evil. We can't hold that he is God's vicar on earth and that he's the most corrupt man that lived in that century at the same time and say, but that's God's will and he is God's chosen. You can't do that. But in Rome, that's possible. And it's possible in the Protestant church, okay? We, we have the same thing going on. We, we look at our leaders, and we know that they're not obeying the Bible in certain places. But we say they're our great leaders. And, uh, and so the same impulse is at work in us. So we'll finish, we'll take up and start with uh, the latter part of this period, and then some of the early lights of the Reformation, Wycliffe, Huss. We talked about them, we won't spend too much time on them. Wycliffe and Huss, Savonarola. How many of you have heard of Savonarola? We'll talk about them, then we'll get into Luther next week. Andrew, would you close us with prayer?